Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. Uh, those with ears might hear a slight difference in the sound of my voice as I'm talking to my co-host, my good friend, who's all with me here week after week, the good Jason Johnson Yellen. But I didn't want to announce you, Jason, first before I address the, the, the elephant in the room, which is huh? the potential that my voice may not sound as soft and sultry as it normally does, and that's because I'm using a, a, a new mic for today's episode. But is it the fault of the traveling mic, or is it the fault of the traveling Joshua? Because it seems like you yeah. might have had some late nights in Chicago and yeah. some late nights in New York City yeah. this week. I blame uh, the sisterhood of the traveling pants on this one. A classic. Yeah. A cl- that's that's a classic statement and a classic movie. <laughs> I, I don't think a week goes by that I don't sit down with my family and watch that tremendous movie. Tremendous. Wow. I'm not going to lie to you. That sounds like a, a, a bold-faced lie. <laughs> yeah, I know. We actually sit down over a week and read the book together. So <laughs> you are correct to call us out. I was trying to be cool. I was trying to be hip. Wow. I was trying to show people that I watch movies too. But no, we actually read the book as a family once a week. Do you really? Uh, yeah, that's not a bald-faced lie. <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> Why are you buying this? Why are you accepting this? Oh, because because you're, you're, you're a book reader. And I feel as if you try to get your kids to read books too. They're too busy reading their own books to listen to the traveling, you know, yeah, yeah, the sisterhood pants. I, I don't even know the title of it. <laughs> oh, it is. There's something about yeah, yeahs in there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeahs. It's my favorite cake song. Oh, okay. I don't know it. I can't, and, and for the life of me, I cannot remember the lyric. Yeahs. The land of race car yeahs. The land where you can't change it's on, it's on one of their albums. I can assure you of that. Is it like the Flaming Lips song? Like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah song? That's maybe a kissing cousin to it. Mm. So. Okay. Well, so what are you up yeah. to? You, you're out and about. You're in, you're in two different marketplaces this week. And you've certainly been busy because we haven't done very much talking. No, that, that's, that's right. I, I, well... Before this trip, I had a week in Disney Mm -hmm. and then came back just for a few days to then go down to Virginia to be with you and and celebrate your son's bar mitzvah. Thank you for doing that. My pleasure. We had a wonderful weekend. Uh, As did we. We hadn't. Um, And then we, we went home on the Sunday and I hopped on a plane on... Oh, no. I hopped in my car on the Monday, drove down to New York. I spent two days in New York with David Cover of Pandaren, which yeah. regular listeners might remember his episode from last year. Um, it was a great episode yeah, as well. Great interview. Good. Yeah, really good. Uh, and then on the Wednesday, we flew to where I am now, which is in Chicago. And uh, we will be here until, oh, just for another day. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Okay, I can't believe you're flying on a Saturday. That's almost unheard of. It is unheard of. I don't like... I like being home with my family for Friday night. 
It's true. And, we both right? we both try to do that. Yep. <laughs> One yep. thing that appeases our wives, given all the travel that we do. <laughs> But on occasion, it doesn't work out, it doesn't it? It does. Oftentimes for me, it's it's around Scotland trips or Pacific Northwest trips. Uh, okay. That's when I tend to lose my Friday night and it never goes over well. Mm. But uh, if I'm East Coast, if I'm Chicago, if I'm California, I'm always trying to be home for that Friday night. Just... Okay. Just shows the end of the work week to the wife, shows the family that they matter. And uh, we have a nice calming Shabbat mm. and then through the weekend. So. Yeah. And invariably, my boys have some sports game on the Saturday. So it's good to be home to participate in you know, the family carpooling that happens. I keep forgetting. And, yeah. and of course, to cheer on the boys. I keep forgetting that your boys are into sports ball. They love nothing more. Than a good sports ball. Wow. Yep. Yep. Nothing more. We're now, not that this is of any interest to you, Joshua, we are now between basketball season and soccer season. Wow. We actually have a few weekends where we have no sports ball happening. Those sound like the best weekends ever. I love them. I love them very much and I miss them when they're gone. So that's the reality of that. That's a reality for many, many, many moms and dads who listen to this podcast. So we're all in this together, friends. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And if, and if you don't have children and I know how much you enjoy your Saturday brunches, know that, yes, I am envious of you. While I would not give my children back or away... I I do I do miss that freedom. My wife and I sometimes talk about back in the day when we had the freedom to sleep in on a Saturday morning. Back in go, my day. Go to an afternoon movie if we wanted to. Right, yeah. And then maybe get takeout and watch another movie or a show, you know, from the some comfort of your couch. Yeah. Like those were those were good days. Those were good days. Great days. And invariably, the conversation would steer to, so when are we starting a family? <laughs> <laughs> Little did uh -huh, we know. Uh -huh. So anyway, I don't want to wax lyrical about the old days, Joshua. Can, can I admit to you, because we're talking about kids, there's a story I've been wanting to tell you, and by extension, our listeners. Absolutely. Uh, what I'm about to tell you has taken over my family life. Uh, All right. in, in the best way. But what we experienced as a family lasted maybe 35 seconds. But now we, we can't stop talking about this. So this is this is me saying absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so so we're we're at we're at Disney World. Okay. All right. And we are in Magic Kingdom and we went over to Tom Sawyer's Island. Now, Tom Sawyer's did they make, yeah. Did they make you paint a fence when you're there? They didn't. They didn't. Okay, that's a book reference. Okay, books. Oh, that's right. You read them every every weekend with your kids. <laughs> we read Tom Sawyer every week <laughs> as a family. <laughs> and so you go there. It's just this little island that you can explore, and there's, you know, uh, like a little kid army outpost, and there's these caves. <laughs> That you can that you can go through, right. and uh, and we start going through these caves, and there was you know. This you sure you were at Disney and not Mogadishu? 
I had my AK-47. <laughs> Caves, <laughs> child armies. This doesn't sound Disney. I think I hear Disney and I think Snow White. <laughs> Although I guess she had a small army herself. She did. So. It's it was a, a small insurgency. Yeah, it was a, a seven dwarf nation army. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so... So we're walking through these caves, which are kind of dark, and the the terrain is sometimes, you know, not not. It's not hard, but it's not super easy. You know, you just gotta watch where you're going a little bit. <laughs> I just love the idea of you being in the Middle East by accident, having a family vacation. We enter into Tom Sawyer's Island in Disney World and end up in <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> And so we had this 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 mom and her her little, you know, I'm I'm guessing four, five, anywhere between four and eight year old boy. I I can't I can't tell ages. And this little boy was so scared, and he couldn't pronounce his R's at all. And and we hear him behind us saying, "Mom, I know there's gonna be spiders in there. I know there's gonna be snakes and crocodiles." And we're and he just keeps on saying that. And as we're walking in, he goes, "Oh, I just know there's going to be like fifteen spiders in there. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's going to be like fifteen spiders. Um, fifteen, yeah, like, fifteen. Like if it was fourteen, yeah. he could deal with it. Yeah, just fifteen, fifteen. All bets are off. There's going to be like fifteen spiders in there. And then, oh. uh, and then we get to the portion of." The, the walk where the, the floor gets crooked, right? You're kind of walking on an angle. And he says, Mommy, I feel sideways. <laughs> oh, I just love the things kids say. And I've been, I've been wanting to share that with you for like two and a half weeks. <laughs> oh, poor little kid. But he made it to the end. He made it out safely. There were not, as he imagined, 15 spiders in there. I know there's going to be like 15 spiders in there. Uh, <laughs> no, there wasn't even the one. That, at least not that we saw. I hope he learned a lesson that day. God it's willing. It's worth overcoming your fears. Mom, why are we in Afghanistan right now? How do we get here? <laughs> I don't want to be in Mogadishu. Um, uh, anyway, so, anyway, anyway, just, just to be clear for, for those, uh, those geography scholars who listen to the podcast, Mogadishu, as we know, is in Somalia. We are making separate Somalia and Afghanistan jokes here. We're not saying Mogadishu is in Afghanistan. Mogadishu is in Afghanistan, Somalia. <laughs> Said like an American. <laughs> right, Afghanistan is a state of Somalia and Mogadishu is a city. What's happening? Why are you still talking? All right, I'll stop talking. Anyway, yes, I know. I understand. Uh, just playing with words, Jason. Um, should we should we stop talking about little little children? We should always stop talking about little children. I think that's yeah. I think that's clear to us. Yeah. So here, let me say this. I wanted. I was thinking about this this morning. Okay. You and I, when we introduced the John Glazer episode. Yeah. We're talking about back in the beginning when we were putting together a podcast, we were thinking, who would we like to have on? Mm. Who would be who would be a good get? And John Glazer, as we said in the introduction, was absolutely one of those people 
that we thought of. But I was thinking about it this morning in thinking about introducing today's episode. We had Sikinder Singh on the same list. Yeah, we did. Oh, yeah. Where it was like, could you imagine if we had a chance to sit down with Sikinder Singh? Like, what would that be like? And we had one failed attempt mm. from Glasgow last year, yep. uh, actually February of last year, when you and I attended the Old and Rare. Mm-hmm. We had scheduled some sit-down time with Sikinder, and there was miscommunication on top of miscommunication, and he didn't show up at the time we had scheduled, and he did look to show up at the time that he thought it was, at which point we didn't have the availability, and we both said, listen, let's just get it the next time we're in London, there will be a time we're next in London, yeah, and we'll get a sit down then. And so, almost the very next time we were in London, it became a reality. It was almost a full year. Exactly. Right? Exactly, yeah. Wow. We were there at the very end of January. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and, and, and I remember that. I remember, you know, you were talking about who we want. And you're right. What are we going to talk about when we have Sikinder? This is a guy who has so many interesting facets to him, you know, starting off in collecting whiskeys, collecting miniatures and then bottles and, you know, starting the whiskey exchange. And do we talk about the independent, you know, the independent bottling lines he has? And do we talk about the shows he does? And maybe he doesn't want to talk about this stuff. Like we didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and, and I would even say that going in to the conversation, I think we had some ideas of what we wanted to discuss, but just figured, Very much so, yeah. You know, but but figured the conversation can go in a multitude of of directions. Let's ask an opening question, and just see where it goes. What what does Sikinder want to talk about? And we kind of let him take that charge in a, in a way. Which is kind of those conversations that we enjoy having with people. They're not question-driven. And we've said this to multiple people. I think sometimes when we schedule an interview and we pitch up and we just have recording equipment and they're kind of like, well, where's your clipboard? Where are your questions? One of the ones that did make us laugh, and I'll mention no names, is we, we organized an interview through a PR company for the person Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the PR company said, well, could you send us a list of your questions? (laughs) And it was kind of like, we don't do lists of questions. We just pitch up with recording equipment and we have a chat. Yeah. And, and they were kind of like, that's not how this works. And we said, well, that's kind of the strength of one nation under whiskey. Yeah. That, is how it works. And and to their credit, they, they, they bent, they flexed a little bit and they said, well, what are the general topics? And we sent them maybe four or five or six Correct. general yes. topics. Yeah. And they were able to say, okay, yeah, all, all of those are fine. Let's press on. And and so, yeah, to, to then walk into an interview with Sikinder, with you and I having an idea of the general topics that we had in mind Mm. that we'd cover along the way. It was really wonderful to have somebody like Sukinder instantly feel comfortable on the mic. Yeah. 
and and instantly go into his own story. And I, I, our listeners are about to hear it in the interview. You and I didn't say a lot of words in this interview. No, we did not. <laughs> There's a little bit of mm-hmm and the occasional wow. But for the most part, this is Sikinder talking us through something that that was really awesome. And I'm and I'm I'm purposely not giving away the game. I really yeah, want yeah, our yeah. listeners to have the same experience as us, which is well, I'm sure the guys are gonna talk about X, Y, and Z, and then see where it goes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I, I can't I can't add anything to what you said there. Uh, <laughs> without I, giving the game away. Yeah, without giving the game away. Yeah, I, th- I think it's best to just hand it over. Now, we, we got about an hour of Sikinder's time. As you might imagine, the person who runs the world's largest whiskey retail company uh, might be slightly busy person. Uh, so we got an hour with him, which we were very thankful for, and we definitely filled that hour of time uh, with a really interesting conversation. So I want to hand everything over to Sikinder, but I have a feeling, Jason, having looked at the video screen and you told me, <laughs> wait one moment, I have a feeling, I'm just a gut, that you might have something uh-huh. to say. But am I right? Is, I'm glad you're picking up what I'm putting down. Fuck. I'm glad you put that down and not something else. I have a question for you, Joshua, oh, for before me. we jump into this. Okay. We have introduced some pre and post interview music. Uh-huh. Have we told the listeners what that's from? Some pre and post intro. Oh, you know what we have? So yeah, so the little, the little tiny clips of music that yeah, take which us, I love, and yeah. I think they're such a beautiful buffer. That it really is a good addition. Yeah. But yes, go on. It is the music that I use for those little, those, those little segs, right? Those little seguies mm-hmm. is from the same band that gave us our intro and outro song. So it's a band called The Way Down. It's my buddy Matt's old band. I used to be in bands with with mm-hmm. a lot of these players and it's just one of my favorite songs off the album and and I th- there was enough you know 2 seconds of this 2 seconds of this that I thought felt like an easing in and an easing out of. And and that's all. And what's the name of the song? The name of the song is called Take It Slow. Take It Slow, right? okay? That's so that's the one that gives us the the little segs, the little ins and outs of the interview and then the opener and closer that's from a song called wooden monsters okay and the album is the album is called welcome to the family zoo and the band is called the way down and it's not w-a-y it's way as in weight it's like Mm. the weight the weight that you feel yeah i'm with you okay cool 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 i just you know, as I'm prone to do, I listen back to our own episodes when I'm driving in the car and I was listening to the little innie and outie on each mm. end of uh, the James Saxon interview, actually. Ah, yeah. And I thought, oh, I wonder if we should cover what that music is. So just very quickly, we have done that. And now, mm-hmm. here is the good Sukinder Singh.
question that that I always I always think of. I don't always ask this, but I always think of this is is I'm curious for those that are quite prolific within the whiskey world and are known for being a whiskey person. What was the spark? What was it about whiskey that got you started on this amazing track over the past 20 plus years to where you are now? So I grew up in retail shops. My parents were the first Indians in the UK to get a liquor license Mm -hmm. back in, I can't remember, 71, 72. So coming on close to 50 years. And we used to live on top of the shop. So, you know, very active, even as kids. It was our playground in reality, you know, in the holidays. You would go out and play, come back to the shop. Yeah. And help out, I think is really the way to put it. Uh, Play with the beer cans and, you know, help (laughs) unload the deliveries coming in. So it was our playground. And then, you know, as when customers used to come in, and ask for certain things, if they were on the top shelf, mm. yeah, on the other side of the counter, my dad would often ask me, say, can you get the ladder and can you get that bottle down? Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. what really intrigued me was, even from a very early age, I knew what was what and what went where. So, mm. you know, these are the whiskeys, huh. those are the gins, those are the vodkas, those yeah. are the rums. I was, I, I'm a very inquisitive type of guy, so I, I watch and learn. So I could see, you know, the Afro-Caribbeans came for the rums and, you know, the English, what type of English guy came for whiskey and what type of guy came for vodka and gin. You know, it was just intriguing. And then who came for the top shelf? And, you know, see the price difference on the top shelf. So it was interesting because often enough, the people who bought a bottle of single malt Mm -hmm. were suited and booted. In those days. Remember, this is going back to the late 70s, early 80s. And I remember that there was one or two customers who were regulars, used to Mm. come maybe once a month to buy a bottle of single malt. And they were regulars. And I remember that uh, I was asked to get the ladder. Mm -hmm. I went up the ladder and I said to him, a bottle of Talisker like last time. (laughs) And he goes, no, son. He goes, what's interesting about single malts is I like a change. Oh. Yeah. And he goes, all the the malts, single malts are very different. Mm. They're all good. And I just like a change. And I mean, in that, at that time, we only had maybe from memory, 10, 12, 15 single malts, and that was it. Okay. And this is late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. So what age is that putting you at? Well, uh, I was born 68. Okay, oh, okay, so 10 or so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. All right. know, just an old enough to go yeah, 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 yeah. and carry the ladder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, I think, probably sparked mm. my interest. And then as a child, I was collecting miniatures. As a family, we were collecting miniatures. We had a, we had a cupboard at home and we had all these lovely little miniatures. And then when we went on holiday, yeah. you know, being in the alcohol trade, you would always pass a drink shop and sort of be intrigued by a drink shop. And then for us, it was like, do they have any miniatures? <laughs> yeah. yes. And so we bought miniatures from <laughs> yeah. other shops around the world, basically. Okay. So it was just interesting like that. Then I joined a, a club, 
the mini, mini bottle club, and realized that I had to specialize in something. So I decided it was going to be whiskey mm. as a whole. A few years later, and this is going on now, this is when I was probably 17, 18. Okay. Good. I was offered um, a collection, or I came across an advert for a collection. Um, by that age, I was already sort of trading, yeah? Um, and believe it or not, the first thing I ever traded through the shop, traded yeah. meaning was um, buying and selling, believe it or not, was Bell's Decanters. <laughs> Bell's, uh, I know, it's funny. Wow. You would not believe <laughs> I had people all over the country driving Imagine. hundreds of miles coming to just buy a Charles and Diana Bell's decanter. Oh and at one point, we were selling them for one and a half thousand pounds each. Oh, my word. Are yeah. you kidding? I'm and because sorry. everybody thought. Because they were very, they wouldn't, you couldn't find them. Oh, wow. Yeah. And even rarer was the miniature of Charles and Diana. They actually oh, did okay. one which was only given to staff of mm. Bell's mm -hmm. or DCL at the time. Um, or United Distillers probably at the time. And I managed to, you know, find workers and buy them off workers. And then I was reselling, again, one and a half to two thousand pounds for a miniature. Oh, gosh. So that's where my interest in sort of, you know, collecting and yeah. buying and selling started. And then I was, I was advertising, looking for stuff through national newspapers mm. from a very uh, that I was looking for Charles and Dyes, especially in Scotland, yeah. advertising in Scotland. And I saw an advert for a collection of 8,000 miniatures. Yeah. Holy cow. And it was like, that's insane. <laughs> but I drove to see the collection. Okay. And they were sitting in the back of a warehouse on the floor, literally just on the floor, <laughs> 8,000 miniatures, just in little groups, little piles. And this was up in Scotland? No, this was in Bath. Oh, okay. 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 Um, West or in England? Yeah. yeah. And I asked, you know, tell me the history. And what I was told was it was at one point the largest miniature collection in the world. Mm. And the guy had put the collection for sale. It went to auction. Somebody in the, in the States bought the collection. Okay. And when it came to paying and shipping the collection, he defaulted because mm. he found out that if he, ha if he brought the collection back to the States, he would have to pay tax. Mm, yep. Yeah? Uh, yeah. And that put him off. Sure. So he defaulted. So they took him to court. And it took literally 10 years for this court process to go through oh, no. so when they advertised a collection for sale the case had ended and they were allowed then to sell it okay and i was like well so what are you looking for and they go highest offer okay <laughs> i said look yeah. this is too big for me i was thinking in my mind you know a pound a miniature yeah right uh, yeah. you're talking eight thousand pounds <laughs> it's just a lot i can't afford this but i just said for interest say i said look I'll give you a call on the day. If you can give me an inkling, you know, as to what we're looking at, mm -hmm. I'll give it a go. And I remember now I was in Germany at the time on holiday <laughs> and I phoned from Germany and said, just out of interest, what's the high offer? Yeah. And the guy goes, we haven't received any offers. I go, what? 
there were so many people there viewing the collection when I yeah. went to see it. He goes, I think it scared people away. So he goes, we haven't had an offer. Huh. I go, what does that mean? He goes, make me an offer. I go, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Make me an <laughs> offer. Yeah, give me a clue. And I go, a thousand pounds. And he goes, let me see. He goes, call me in a couple of hours. Yeah. So uh, when you posed a thousand in your head, are you thinking this is ridiculous? He's going to laugh me out of here. Uh, honestly, are you thinking this that might was be a more, starter? No, it was more a case of that's what I could afford. Okay. okay. Money in pocket. Okay. Uh, honestly, right. in my mind, it was like, what could I afford? A thousand, one and a half thousand, okay. maybe. So you, you had know? a bit of money, took a punt, yep. see where it went. And okay. so I phoned back a couple of hours later, and the guy goes, Look, we've been told if you can just increase the offer a little bit, it's yours. And I go, Okay, 1100. He goes, Fine, it's yours. <laughs> oh my God. So, so then I bought this collection. I went through the collection. There was rums, there was gins, there was cognacs, there was whiskey. Okay. And I split the whole collection up, and there was like, 200 rums, 250 cognac, 300, 400 cognacs, 1,000 liqueurs, you know, and there was mm -hmm. about 4,000 whiskeys. And I looked at it and go, this is crazy. This is still too much because huh? I didn't have a big place, you okay. know, to, okay. to put any of this. And I spoke to a friend of mine who's part of the club and he goes, again, the, I know you like single malt whiskey. Mm. He goes, why don't you just collect single malt whiskey? So I, I split the collection between blends and malts. And there was 400 single malts. And that I just thought, you know what? Okay. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. Mm -hmm. Absolutely mm -hmm. perfect. That's sort of what really got me into it. And, you know, okay. there was something about single malts that intrigued me. And then I, of course, you know, did a bit more research. I was already going to Scotland, you know, and mm. visiting distilleries. So I knew enough. But then it was a case of, okay, let's, let's see what I can take this. I sold everything else over the course of another year, year and a half. Okay. There was a guy who had just started collecting rum miniatures. I sold him the rum collection. A guy who just started collecting cognac miniatures. I sold him the cognac miniature. You know, I just yeah, yeah. got rid of everything beautifully, yeah. the blends yeah. and, and some of the malts, which were duplicate. And it was perfect. I made a lot of money and I used that money back in single malts. Wow. And I just started collecting. And over the next 10 years, I amassed the biggest single malt whiskey miniature collection probably on the planet, which was probably close to four, four and a half thousand miniatures wow. okay. in a case of 10 years. I had everything, every variation, yeah. everything, you know, but I did it slowly and yeah, it was yeah. really interesting. What was it about, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm, as you're going on about these miniatures that, that got you on your way, obviously after your time uh, growing up in the family uh, bottle shop, what was it about miniatures that attracted your family and then you to them? I don't know. I think it's when you have very limited space at home. Yeah. I think it's, it sort of works. Yeah. Okay. You know, and you choose, I guess, when you're young or you choose things which look pretty rather than, mm. you know, having a, a purpose to say, I'm going to collect malts. Yeah. It didn't mean anything to me. We just collected anything which was uh, okay. in a nice bottle or a shape or whatever. And yeah. That was a mixture of everything. Yeah. Okay. But I said later, you know, once I put my head to it, mm. just got a bit of advice. It was sort of everything made sense. And it was like, I've always loved malts. I've always mm. loved that top shelf. I've yeah. always mm. loved the history of single malts. You know, these distilleries are amazing. Everything made sense. 
So for me, as I said, I just started on that journey of amassing, mm. learning the variations. While I was doing this, of course, I was selling bottles in the shop. And as more malts were released by suppliers and brands, our, our single malt whiskey range grew and grew and grew. Mm. You know, so I was very interested. So it wasn't, I was collecting miniatures because I think what was nice was I could see an end goal. Mm. You know, that that's very important in collecting. Okay. And very dangerous because, you know, if you suddenly say tomorrow, I want to collect, I don't know, say Ardbeg, mm. every Ardbeg ever bottled. Mm-hmm. You're talking about thousands of bottles. Yeah, sure. But you look at all the single cars and what, yeah. thousands. Yeah. If you if you're talking about something like yeah. Kalila, it's even worse, mm-hmm. you know. So I think what's nice was there was an end goal. I, okay. I knew what, who had the biggest collection and how many they had, and I had surpassed that. And all I was doing was picking up new stuff or I was picking yeah. up variations, which I didn't have. And that was beautiful. Okay. But of course, when I got there, I got bored. <laughs> yep. Makes yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, yeah. it was only, I guess, natural for me. Uh, and that inkling was there to say, I love big bottles. I love big bottles. There's something interesting about big <laughs> bottles. I want to collect big bottles. So as soon as I got to the point that I stopped spending money on miniatures, because yeah. I was hardly picking up anything, I naturally went to big bottles. But what I did, and I think it was the right decision at the time, I don't know how or why I thought of this, but I just did. I had decided that I was only going to collect one bottle from each distillery. Okay. Okay because I could see an end goal. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. And I, f- believe, I wanted that, um, what we call it, it'd be something very special. Not something I could go to my sh- shop and pick a bottle off the shelf of. Sure. I wanted something older. Yeah. So, you know, I was doing all this research and I had these beautiful old miniatures from the 30s and 40s. That's what interested me. And the first bottle I ever bought was I went to Scotland to buy a miniature collection. Uh, the guy had, I think, from memory, 400 miniatures. Wow. Nice one, single malts. And I did the deal for the miniatures in like 15 minutes. I went through them. I could tell straight away, great, okay. good, bad, whatever. Did the deal. And then I saw he had a bottle of whiskey of some sort on his mantelpiece. I go, do you mind if I have a look? Picked it up, had a look. I go... I've never heard of this. What is it? It was something called Kirk Liston Pure Malt. Hmm. I've got, never heard of this. He goes, he goes, it was a distillery up the road, which closed in 1930s. So this is a bottle from that distillery. And my eyes nearly popped out. <laughs> of course they did. Like, <laughs> oh my God, this is interesting. And I had already started collecting bottles mm-hmm. by then. Mm-hmm. I only had seven or eight mm. because as I said I only wanted something really special yeah. so I only had seven or eight bottles but when it was like oh my god he wouldn't sell it it took me an hour of talking and negotiating <laughs> to be able to buy that bottle and honestly I paid a fortune this is going back probably 25 years mm-hmm. and okay. I think I paid 700 pounds for it mm. then Okay. Yeah, I paid well, a fortune. Which was a fortune, yeah. Okay. It was a fortune, okay. but I've never seen another. Okay. Uh, so I'm happy. Wow. It's, Do you see what I mean? Today, yeah. today, a, lost dis- bottle, uh, a bottle from a lost distillery is the holy grail. Yeah. Yeah, yeah of yeah. any sort. Yeah. So for me, it was the right thing to do in hindsight. 
And that's really what got me going. I, I During this time, I, I was not really drinking whiskey. Mm. Yeah. Um, I started drinking whiskey when I was around 21. Okay. Um, you could say it's not late. Here, I guess people started yeah. 17, 18. Yeah. You know, not whiskey, but drinking. Sure. I started drinking at around 21. Initially Guinness, that's what I loved. And then as I was collecting, it was like I knew what was good. I knew everything, you understand? It was just, mm. this is a good distillery. This is supposed to be an amazing whiskey. I was going to Scotland. I was visiting, you know, shops like Haddonheads yeah, and yeah, yeah. Gordon mm -hmm. MacPhail. And there's a little whiskey shop there. I used to be a frequent visitor of Milroy's. And John Milroy or Jack Milroy sort of took me under his wing and said, he used to call me Sukin the Sun. And <laughs> so, you know, it was like, oh my God, it's my granddad, you know, he's yeah. look after me. And it was beautiful. Yeah, Honestly, yeah. he really, really looked after me and probably my biggest hero. Wow. It really is. Wow. Um, and so I knew what was good. And then probably, you know, a couple of years later when I said, look, I need to know more. The craving was there. I was drinking. I was going to these shops and distilleries and trying yeah. stuff. But then I was like, I'm ready. I need to discover myself, you know. Um, I tried all the stuff on the shelves because when our suppliers came, I used to say, do you have any open or can I try it? Yeah, sure. So that I tried. But for me, what intrigued me was the old stuff, you know, the okay. things which were legendary. And the first whiskey I ever opened was a Springbank 21 dumpy bottle, which, oh, yeah. which is still legendary today. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just like for me, I don't know why, it just attracted me, it yeah. pulled me, it interested me more than anything else. And I remember drinking that bottle. So, you know, it was just like a dram, a couple of drams a day. And what I loved, and I heard about this, but I'd never experienced this, mm. was how it changed. Because every time mm. I went back to the bottle, I picked up new flavors, I picked up something completely different, and it was like, something wrong. It <laughs> keeps changing. What's happening? This is just amazing. You know? And in reality, it just got better and better yeah. and better and better and better. And I remember all the way through the bottle till the end, uh -huh. it just kept changing and getting better and better. And for me, it was wow. just amazing. And that was it. And then it was like, I got to open more. And then, you <laughs> yeah. know, you yeah, open yeah, yeah. one of these, one of these, one of these. <laughs> so after that, I'd got a, I wouldn't say out of control. I was in control, but sure. I wanted to try as much as possible. And I, I want to come back <clears throat> to that in a second. To pause for a moment, you talk about the research. I was doing this research and doing that research. You were doing this right through the decade of the 90s, which yeah. was the kind of the transition period where we started to move on to the internet, but clearly the very, very early days of the internet. How were you doing your research? What did that look like? It was purely word and mouth, phone calls, faxes, and that was it. Wow. That's yeah. remarkable. So as I said, I started, you could say, trading or swapping. Initially for myself, initially for miniatures, I had... I had friends in Italy, I had friends in Netherlands, in Germany, in Japan, in Hong Kong, and we were communicating with each other initially by letter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So one miniature swap would take like a month. Uh -huh. You know, by you the time you wrote, <laughs> two weeks later you got a letter back yeah. and it would tell you how much. Then you had to do a bank, you know, a, a, a whatever bank. Check transfer, in, yeah, you know, yeah. no yeah. bank transfer. Oh, a uh, bank check, yeah. Yeah, bank check in... Or in a money order. Money order, yeah. that's Or postal it. orders. <laughs> yeah. 
send that back and another two weeks later you got this miniature that's a lot it was of trust crazy. oh my god it was because yeah, the, the money's either the money's gone yeah. and, the, and the miniature isn't fortunately or the they're all gone, really the good guys it. really good guys that's good yeah. Yeah. yeah and so from that as i said it's talking mm -hmm. i became very good friends with the manager at Cattenheads um back in the 90s um late late early no early 90s early 90s uh when the Caddenhead shop in edinburgh opened mm -hmm. because there wasn't a shop in edinburgh it used to be aberdeen and eaglesums and campbelltown okay. and then they re i don't know if they reopened the shop or they opened the shop on the royal mile um on cannon gate and the shop manager was also sort of new into whiskey i was new into whiskey but good thing was we had very different experiences because he was immersed into independent bottlings mm -hmm. and i was immersed into distillery stuff yep. yeah so literally we would talk two to three times a week you know just wow. talking about what they're launching and what's really good so anything he used to say well this is really good i would say put me a bottle aside mm -hmm. and if it was distillery over time when i found distilleries which i really enjoyed i would say you know what okay i'll drink one and keep one put me two bottles aside mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. something like that mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I think what was beautiful with the 90s, so literally when I started um, in big, so I probably started collecting big bottles, I think, oh, I know, around 87. Okay. okay? Wow. And then the first auction I ever went to was in 88. That was the first ever whiskey auction held in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And I, by chance, I was just there, wow. heard about it, went to it. And then 89, I went every year for the next 15 years. Okay. Every single auction. Okay. Because there was only one per year, sure. which was nice. So I built my whole trip around Scotland, around the auction. And then I would visit distilleries. I made contacts because they knew me from being a retailer. Oh, you sell our whiskey. You're a good boy, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's a good in. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Um, and became really friendly with staff. Some of the guys then, you know, would retire and then would say, do you want to buy my whiskey? So I would buy their collections. Um, and then they would say, I would say, do you have any friends? Okay, I'll tell my friends. You have to remember... I was the only person literally in the world buying and selling whiskey. Amazing. You see my point? Absolutely. There was yeah. no Amazing. one. This was way before the internet. It was way before anything. Wow. I was literally taking um, a, a little minivan. Yeah? Mm. Um, so basically, my car became my minivan, which had seats, <laughs> which would all fold down and everything. Yeah, yeah. And I honestly, within three years of me sort of starting this, I would come back with a full van. Wow. From top, from bottom to top, full. Absolutely full. Good because God. I would end up picking 10, 12 bottles from one guy, another 10, 12 from another, another 10, 12 from another, mm -hmm. sometimes a little collection of 30, 40 bottles from someone else. Then I'd go to distilleries and they would have some limited edition bits and I'd go, oh, can I have six or 12 bottles? Yeah, sure. Uh -huh. The thing is, no one did mail order. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Right. And... I became the person that people around the world knew I was a collector. The good thing was, and this is why they liked me, was because the first bottle I would ever ask them of anything to swap or whatever would always be for me. Mm. So that that rule of one from di one from each distillery sure. fell apart very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because then. 
You know, in, for example, in 93, they launched Black Bowmore. Mm -hmm. like, That's so beautiful. Yeah. Right. And then I got a chance to try it. Uh -huh. I was like, I've got to have one of those. You know, <laughs> did it fit into my collecting profile? No. But I had to have one of those. Yeah. You see my point? Yeah. And then they launched at the same time the Bowmore 30th anniversary in the red box. Yeah. I had to have one of those. Next year, the you know second release and the third release. Oh. And then a lot of distillers started launching vintages and things which were a bit more interesting. And by the time the late 90s came, you know, um, there was a lot of stuff happening. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a yep. lot of stuff happening. And I think what was really interesting for me is that when I started, it was for me the golden era. Yeah, when I really, when I sort of restarted, so we sold my parents' business in 99. Okay. Within three months, we set up again initially didn't know what we wanted to do as mm. my brother and myself and then we said look i said to raj i said i'd love to do a whiskey business but i'd only do it if you do it with me hmm. and he goes all right let's do it <laughs> i said look let's give it a go for a year if it works yeah. fine if it doesn't we'll go and get a proper job okay you know? okay okay, okay. so it was scary you know it was a risk and it was scary mm. but when we started it was beautiful because douglas lang had just started Duncan Taylor had just started. Mm. They were bottling beautiful whiskies, you know. Uh -huh. uh, but everything, a lot of their old stuff was all from the 60s. Yeah. Right. All right. from the 60s. <laughs> Do you understand? And yeah. early 70s. Yeah. And that stuff is mind-blowing. Yeah. It's selling for, what, thousands today. Yeah. And honestly, we got beautiful, huge allocations of these whiskies, and we sold. We sold, we sold, we sold. And honestly... By choosing the right things, by getting good allocations, um, in some cases, you know, half of what was bottled, we managed to basically build a great reputation hmm. and it made us, hmm. you know, those early years yeah, yeah, yeah. really made us because we were there at the right place at the right time. Yeah. I was trying everything. I was choosing, well, if I liked it, I would buy a lot. Um, Had you built a clientele at the parent shop yeah. that came with yep. you yep. to the yep. new endeavor. Absolutely. So you were a new, a known commodity. Yeah, but very few. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm talking about a couple of dozen people. Okay. Yeah. You with me? But yeah. believe it or not, those couple of dozen people were diehard whiskey collectors. And for me, if I go back or if I think back, they were some of the best and most interesting people I ever met. Mm -hmm. wow. And most of them are still friends today. Oh, oh that's, Seriously. That's great. Yeah. Still friends today. Whether they're buying much now or not, doesn't matter. They're still very, very mm. good friends. Mm -hmm. And for me, they started at the right time. They And most of them were drinkers as well, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and they bought for the right reasons. I think it's the important part. Okay, okay. Unpack that a little bit. They bought for the right reasons. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a big statement at the end there. I think, look, this thing about collecting today, I'm a collector, so I'm not going to say collecting is bad, yeah? But I think there's a lot of people who are collecting for the wrong reasons, purely for investment. You know what? It's fine. But I think when your people are looking to flip straight away within mm. weeks or months mm. of buying the bottle... I don't really believe in that. I find it quite artificial. Some people are making good money. Um, great. I think it's dangerous for the market. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, 
artificially lifting the market. Yeah, agree. That for me is dangerous. And what I think a lot of brands don't talk about today when they come and sell us product is the liquid. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. It's about oh, we've got a new limited edition this, and uh, we've got a new limited yeah. edition that. Doesn't it look good? This box cost a fortune to make, and I'm sitting there listening, and I go, and how good is it? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, yep. You see my point. Yep. So, yeah. I think there's a big change for me. That's the biggest change that some of the people selling to us don't really care about whiskey. Mm-hmm. It's a job. Whereas in the old days, whiskey was, you know, the pressure was less. Today, it's become a com- sort of a commodity. Sure. Do you understand? Mm. Before, it was all about blends and the malts were special and the malts were, you know, mm. you have to hand sell them and you have to nurture them. And that was really, really nice. Sure. And today, it's just becoming, how much can you take? Can you not take more? Mm. You know, and it's push, yeah. push, 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 push. Mm. We have a new limited edition. And... I would honestly say to you, I actually can't keep up. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Until maybe six, five, six years ago, I could keep up with everything that was happening, everything that was being bottled. I can't keep up. Hmm. I genuinely can't. Hmm. I think you have to now use your experience to know who bottles good stuff, hmm. to know that, okay, this vintage from this distillery should be good, mm-hmm. you know, she can take a punt on it. Mm-hmm. And you have to just go by the reputation of people bottling stuff and, and what stocks they have to know they're not just, you know, buying casks to sell the next day, they're buying casks for the long-term, nurturing them and bottling when they feel they're ready. Mm-hmm. And if they don't like it, they recask it or they sell it on. Yep, mm. agreed, good. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that's the big, big, big change. I cannot keep up with the new stuff. You know, I think in the old days as well, I guess, big difference, you know, the market, the globe has just exploded for whiskey. And before everything was made for the UK and everywhere else was secondary. And sadly now, you know, you've got a lot of products made only for Asia. And they never see the light of day here. Uh, Are you still collecting though? I am. I am. Do you have a, a new locus? I don't, I mean, I'm still very, look, I've got, I, I, I say to myself, um, I have two parts to my collection, okay? I like collecting what I call historic bottles, which I think are very important for my collection. And then secondly, I collect whiskies, which I like, mm-hmm. yeah? Mm-hmm. So as I said, I've got two collections. So there may be, I've, apart from what we see here in my boardroom, which is, I think, about nine or 10,000 bottles. I have another two, two and a half thousand bottles of what I would say amazing drinking whiskey. Yeah. Okay. So I've got two of this, three of that, whatever. Sure. And a lot of that is independent. Some of that is distillery stuff, which I've got on display here, but then I've got a second bottle or a third bottle. Mm-hmm. So that's my main focus. I just buy what I like, simple okay. as that, hmm. you know. There are a few things which I guess, you know, as a collector, I buy because it's part of the collection and regardless of what it is. One thing, for example, the only distillery I currently collect absolutely everything is Port Ellen. Yeah, and that's really 
because I could see an end goal. When I started collecting Portel and 10 years ago, I did it for its Isla, mm-hmm. not a bad whiskey, not yeah. the best Isla whiskey, but not a bad whiskey. It's a lost distillery. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there were actually hardly any bottlings of Portel yeah. on the market. Yeah. And everyone felt that it would disappear. Little did we know that Diageo was sitting on hundreds, uh-huh. hundreds and hundreds of casks, and actually Douglas Lang had uh-huh. access to hundreds and hundreds of casks. You know, if I knew that, I might not have done it. Okay. Um, but I sort of started it, and I've just sort of carried on. I think I'm on about 970 or 980 different Portellans, okay. you know, and okay. probably missing 20. 25 different, so close to a thousand, you could say. So how does one find out what's missing? Are, are you in contact with Nick Morgan? Are you in the Diageo archive? Uh, remember Di- remember the at- distiller stuff, there's only two, a, do- a couple of dozen yeah. bottles. Everything is independent bottling. But, but, but then you've, you've they, caught they, up with the stuff that was released Yeah, you previously. see it, you see people, friends in their collections, you see occasional a bottle in it somewhere, and you, I'm, I added to my list to say missing, missing. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, okay. Oof, okay. It's a big ask, the yeah. poor Ellen. Yeah, uh, yeah, and th- and now that it's reopening, that end game, <laughs> the yeah, end is so no longer in sight. Or, it or, isn't, or is though. It? We got a, we got a good ten years before they start bottling. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's <laughs> <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> so that's one thing. Um, um, I had you put a pin in something a, a few moments ago. You, yes, you're a collector. Yes, you're buying a couple. You know, save one, open one. We've been lucky enough to interview Ollie at Chilton. We've been lucky enough to interview Chris Mabin from here and have conversations with them. They have always raved about the fact that you are also an enthusiastic bottle opener. And and in having conversations about those historical whiskies that you've been mentioning along the way, you also haven't hesitated to open them if the moment calls for it whether it's, you know, from what we've heard from the two of those chaps, it's educational moments. You're talking about, you know, the 1962 Macallan or something like that, and you say, well, actually, give this a try, and then when you try it, you get excited. And just like we do in our homes when people come to visit us, oh, if you like that, try this. And if you like this, try that. Mm. We're not doing it with kind of the caliber of what you're doing it with, but you've got that enthusiasm, now, how much do you enjoy sharing the collection as well as just looking at the closed bottles through glass? I think we all learned a long time ago, whiskey is a lot of fun when you enjoy it with like-minded people. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was doing it a lot in the old days. I think if I go back in time, one very important point to note is that when I was in the business in the early days, it was actually very lonely. Mm. There was hardly anyone I found in the UK who was that serious. Mm -hmm. And I only Mm -hmm. found people came into it probably 10, 15 years ago. As back as 20 20 years ago when we started the Whiskey Exchange, I was on my own. Wow. Honestly, we had only a handful of customers, excuse me, a handful of customers in the UK that really were into good single cast whiskey. So I started, as I said, I made friends across the globe. So I started traveling to go and see them. Went to Japan, went to Germany, went to the Netherlands. And 
it was amazing because, you know, when we got together, it was always bring a bottle or bring two bottles and we'll open something special. Yeah. And we all, you know, it does sort of become a competition, you know, with friends to see who's going to bring the yeah, best, exactly. uh-huh. <laughs> as you do. Um, so it was always a challenge and everyone was trying to prove themselves and yeah. it was always fun. And we got to try the most amazing stuff, yeah? Mm. Mm. And from that, I think, you know, it's 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 been interesting. You, you share, I think, with the big team now that we have, mm. it's my job to teach them. Nice. You see what I mean? Nice. They can only get better at what they do if you keep sharing your education, you keep sharing what inspires you. And I've seen that with, with the number of my colleagues who are, you know, really into whiskey, that when we've done, opened certain things, invited certain people, they really got it. Mm-hmm. You know, before I felt that actually, you know, they were missing something. But when they see the passion of people mm. and they start sharing and talking, they really get it. Ollie's been fortunate to go with me to, for example, there was a legendary trip to Isla called Isla Odyssey. Okay. I mm. don't know if you've heard of it. Mm-mm. So is a group, like-minded group, we try and get together once a year. I've missed a number of these trips because timing has never been right for me. It's like a week of craziness, yeah, of each person bringing two to three really, really unbelievably special bottles. Um, But it's like only a dozen people, 15 people, invite only. And the trip to Isla, I think there was about 10, 12 people and about 70 bottles of whiskey. Wow. But we, if you saw what was open, every day... We went to the distillery and opened the whiskies at the distillery. Fantastic. (laughs) It was crazy. It was amazing. But I guess this is the reason why we started Old and Rare. Mm -hmm. You see my point? Yeah. was because what is a nice way to share? Because, look, it's nice to open expensive bottles, but then, you know, it's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. If you can sell part of that bottle and get back and, you know, drink a quarter of it, it makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Makes sense? Yeah, yeah. And I think the second thing was, it always upset me that there was no good whiskey show in the home of whiskey, Scotland. Mm-hmm. You know, no one had managed to do it. It always frustrated me. The Germans did it really well and the Dutch did it really well. <laughs> and it was like, why can't we do it in Scotland? And so for me, it was always a challenge to to try and do it. And then... You know, Angus and Johnny came to me saying, I know you've been wanting to do this for a while. We want to do this. We're going to do it. Do you want to get together? And we said, yeah, fine, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we did it. And it's worked really well. You know, it's, it's not a big show, but it's what I would call a quality show. Yeah. It's, it's the right people and the right drams in the right atmosphere. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got just the perfect perfect balance of everything yeah so we did two years in scotland we had to unfortunately move because we couldn't find a venue and uh, some other reasons so we've moved to london this year we will probably go back to scotland at some point okay. so oh, okay. we'll make it a traveling show or whatever oh, okay so let's see how it how it pans out but hmm. that was the reason for yeah. doing it yeah we we built last year we built our early year travel which is always in january which is why we're here in january but we built last year's trip around Old and Rare. So we said, okay, we normally do January. Let's do February. We need to be part of this yeah. show. And, and it was everything that, that we 
would have hoped for and more. The interesting thing from our perspective is we're so rarely in country and we get to see people that we so rarely see. That we found we found we were talking a bit more than we were actually drinking, mm. but we were having good conversation yeah, over yeah. good drink, yeah. which is as, a as good far as that festival goes. Itself. We are both old and rarely in country, <laughs> so we've really got that covered. Um, so you, you've got just a few minutes left. I had some other questions I wanted to ask, but let's 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 keep it to yeah. the collecting end of it. Yeah. Sure. You started collecting around 87-ish, mm-hmm. and here we are 33 years now into your collecting. Mm-hmm. The world has changed quite a lot, and a bit of it, maybe it feels a bit doom and gloom. Now you can't keep up with things, but what about collecting, or maybe the, the whiskey industry writ large, has you excited? I guess what still keeps me excited is that there are lesser people doing a good job, which mm. I believe, which gives, I believe, us, you know, our sister company, for example, an opportunity to say, let's try and prove ourselves. Mm. Um, I think that's nice. And I think if you select well from whoever, you mm. know, whichever bottler it is, I think if you can do a good job of that, I think your customer base will keep growing because they trust yeah. you more. So I think the other thing that's probably changed is, as you said, being doing it for such a long time now, you've got to remember that makes me quite old in the industry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I guess it's nice that a lot of other people look up to yeah. us or look up to me. And, you know, you feel um, an element of... You know, you need to educate, you need to teach, you need to guide, which is nice. And, you know, it's nice talking to people. It's nice educating people, nice trying to understand who's interested, who's not, Mm. and see them develop and see them change. I think, you know, that's really interesting. I think what I dislike is people who have been in the industry two to three years and they're they call themselves experts. Yeah. Yes. I think that's really annoying and that's wrong. Mm. I don't call myself an expert. I call myself experienced, mm. you know, because honestly, every day we still learn every something. Exactly. Honestly, every day. Exactly. you know, I'm yeah. still picking up old and rare bottles, which I've never seen before. Mm. We're still finding bottles which are fake. You know, we mm. pride ourselves. I think there's no one better in the world at spotting fakes than we are. Yeah. Honestly, my database of fakes is phenomenal. We're currently, I'm, I'm throwing this in, we're currently working on a project where we're going to be working with uh, Whiskey Dot Auction, uh, yeah. in our sister company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we're creating a section on their website which is going to highlight fakes alongside the real bottle mm. and explain to people, you know, why it's a fake, give them enough information. For me, it's quite sad there is no place to go to know, to check, if you see what I mean. And we spot stuff all the time. Honestly, it's become second nature. Really? Yeah, people find it hard. People find it really difficult and say, oh, we need to carbon date this, we need to test this, we need to do that. For me, utter rubbish. You can tell a mile away. Mm. Wow. You really can. When something has not been done, you know, of course it's a fake. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, I guess what you have to remember, 
the big advantage of collecting for 33 years is you've nearly seen everything. Mm. Remember, when I started collecting, one of the first things I started collecting was Macallan. Mm -hmm. I built myself a database at the time of what was out there, so I had an end goal of getting it. Yeah. Because yeah. I I was obsessed with Macallan in the early days because sure. it was such a phenomenal whiskey at that time when I first started collecting. I was I wanted every vintage. I wanted every uh, Gordon McPhail vintage. Mm -hmm. I went to see all the collections in Europe to see what people had. I met, you know, some of the old importers and, you know, you spoke to them and you saw their records yeah, and you saw yeah. stuff. So the thing is, when you were there right at the early stages i mean some of these bottlings were done in the late 60s early 70s up to the mid 70s mm -hmm. i was collecting late 80s yeah at that time for mccallan yeah, yeah it was only 10 12 years later okay. or when this stuff was released mm -hmm. you were able to so catch up exactly yeah. and at that time believe it or not there were no fakes for um, me there was no fakes at that time yeah fakes started probably 20 years ago okay yeah, approximately. Yeah. So I had seen and I've got databases and I've got places to go and check. And to be fair, I amassed most of my McCallan collection then. Okay. Do you see my point? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've got a benchmark. So when you see something that I don't have, you look at it again. A, it looks, the label doesn't look right. Mm -hmm. And B, if it's not here, you sort of know. I'm not to say, you know, believe it or not, we found something in my collection recently Um which was not right. Right. Yeah. Just because I bought it probably 10 years ago, didn't look at it properly enough. Because mm. at that time, you didn't, you know, it wasn't that weren't common or it wasn't happening time. that yeah. often. It's got out of control now. Yeah. But to be fair, a lot of the McAllen stuff, which is fake, I believe was done 10, 12 years ago. I think it's the same stock rotating still out there. I think, yeah. I don't believe much is being done today. Yeah? You've got stuff being done of other stuff, mm -hmm. of the higher end stuff and stuff like that. Recently, for example, another retailer sent us a bottle of Macallan 1928, 50-year-old to verify. Okay. Yeah? Saying, could you please give me your expert opinion sure. whether you think this is fake or not, or real or not. And I go... Will you get bring the bottle? He goes, we'll post it to you. I go, look, you can post it to me, but I'm not posting it back. I'm not taking the responsibility if anything happens. <laughs> yeah. I go, I will pack it carefully. Your courier has to pick it up or you come and pick it up. If you trust me, I go, I'll pack it properly. Don't worry about that. Yeah. I'll video it. I'll do whatever I have to. Mm. But it's on your responsibility. He goes, yeah, yeah, fine, fine. So we got it. As soon as took it out of the bottle, fake. Didn't uh, have to look at it. What was the tell? tell? Or the printing colour, yeah. the paper, it was just it's just wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just okay. wrong. I've seen f four or five of these now mm -hmm. in different places. Sometimes the same bottle travels around and it's sad. And then mm. you're talking about a hundred thousand pound bottle. So Wow. <laughs> so so in whiskey.auction when you receive fakes, is is there a protocol? Do you There is now we're yeah. very, very strict. Um, my colleague Diego, who works with yeah. me, is um, is proved to be very, very good. He's getting better and better. Mm -hmm. He's the first port of call. If he's not sure, he'll then call me, mm -hmm. and we'll go down and look at it together um, and check. It. If we're not sure, we'll take it back and do a bit more research. And I think we're pretty good at it. 
you know mm. look is ever, is anyone a hundred percent i think it's impossible yeah mm-hmm. things yeah. slip the net hundred sure. you know everyone makes mistakes you could mm. say but of course we're doing our best to make sure you know working really hard to make sure we find stuff and spot yeah. stuff and take it off the market i guess the difficulty is i'm saying take it off the market we can't take it off the market all we can do is return it yeah yeah, that's the you sound. Can't dis- yeah. You can't call them up and say, "Hey, we have to destroy this." Yeah. There's nothing. No. Wow. Because else I prove it. How yeah. can you prove it? Yeah. I can tell you it is yeah. because of my things. And then but it's just going to pop up again. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. yeah. That is the biggest problem. And yeah. you know, we can take a picture. Yeah. We can post it online, which we yeah. will do, and then it's for peop- for the buyer to beware, come and check, access, mm. you know, look at, mm. and see. It's been interesting listening to you throughout today's interview and thank you again for your time how much you talk about trust how much you talk about other people how much you talk about camaraderie and I think it's easy to look at somebody where we're in a room a boardroom surrounded by bottles and think it's only about the bottles and listening to you today it sounds like it's all about the people it is it is I mean look you go back these whiskies are great because of the people who made them there you go at the end of the day and you know sadly sometimes these people are forgotten. You know, if you yep. work for a big distiller, you know, they champion one or two people, mm. but everyone forgets about the rest of them. And actually, you know, for, for me, when I started, and I said, I used to go to the distilleries and no one talked to these people in those days. Yeah. Hmm. You got to yep. remember that. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? Yep. I could, I, they would take me around. They would, you know, I get these, these, these evening tours. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd get to hear the stories from these old guys. Yeah. Honestly, it was beautiful. Yeah. It was amazing. It was beautiful. And they were such nice people. I guess one regret probably I have was, you know, my mindset is a little different now. Those days it was more about, you know, talk to me about bottles and talk to me about people and talk to me about that. Mm-hmm. I guess what I probably didn't ask enough about in those days was production. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Now yeah. my mind is more about, I want to know how you make it. Yes. Yeah. You see what yes. I mean? You yeah. know, how'd you make it? What were you doing then? <laughs> what was different? What yeast right. are you using? Uh-huh. What this yeah. are you doing? What uh-huh. What are your cut points and all the rest That's of it? That's what we're after so, all the time. You see my point? <laughs> yeah. So I missed that, unfortunately, because I was so obsessed with bottles. But yeah. It yeah. was it was it was exciting. It was really exciting. Yeah. I think look, it is it is difficult now, but I think I keep to myself. I, I hang around with people I like and enjoy. You know, I'm not going to a lot of the new product launches anymore. Mm-hmm. I only go where I believe it might be worthwhile. Okay. And I think what what I miss is probably in the old days, even up to 10 years ago, you would go to new product launches and you would know the liquid would be quite not bad. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just not sure, you know, really not sure. I think what's important is that, I would say to you, standard whiskies, you know, the 10, 12-year-old malts, yeah. I think are better today than they were 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. That I would definitely say. Yeah? Because mm. if you go back in time, 10, 12, 15 years ago, when the Japanese were winning every single competition, yeah? I used to be a judge in those days. And what was really interesting, sitting and judging, I could see the faces of my Scottish colleagues trying the Japanese and whiskeys going, these are good. And the Irish, <laughs> yeah. these are good. Wow. What's, you know, yeah. why are ours not showing as well as these? <laughs> and I could see this year after year, and it got worse. 
And then everyone after that, I could tell, went back to the drawing board, started re-looking at casks, started re-looking at, you know, what they were doing in production. And I think everyone stepped up and re-looked at everything. Mm. And, you know, wood management, I think, especially... You know, Agreed. changed yeah. a lot. Yeah. And you know, today everyone talks about oh, we've got the best wood policy. We've yeah. got the best wood. Everyone's got the best the wood, wood policy. policy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's when it happened. That's when it happened. And the the, the fruit of what they did then is now coming in bottle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You see my yeah. point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously, there was a there was a time. 10, 12, 15 years ago when 10, 12-year-old whiskey, some of them were really so-so. They yeah, weren't that amazing. Mm-hmm. And actually, they're good. And I think f- following on from that, as over the next 5, 10 years, these 15-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 20, they're going to be really they're gonna good. They're going to get better. And as long as they don't change much, even the 10, 12s will be good. I think they're more consistent. Mm. It's probably mm-hmm. yeah. the way to put yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the word yeah. you hear all probably the time. Probably more in the consistent. Yeah. Because, you know, they've got bigger control, this, that, the other. It really is an interesting thing, though, that you can, you can tie it back mm. to a time when, when distillers were saying, we need to sort out our wood management program. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the change. And then, of course, you have the number of years it takes to become a 12, 10, 12, 15 year old whiskey. Yeah. Yeah, we could go down the rabbit hole with you on this. You've given us 17, 18 minutes no past problem. your 10 minutes. So that'll be part two. Huge thanks to Sikinder Singh uh, for meeting with us, spending the time with us to talk about whiskey collecting, which is, right, like we said in the beginning, we didn't know which way this was going to go. I didn't even know if we were going to ask about whiskey collecting, but that's what he wanted to talk about. And I'm so glad that we did go down that rabbit hole because it's a bit of a divisive subject. It it is. And one of the things that you and I talked about when we left that interview was it was really telling the way that for Sukinder it was a communal activity. Hmm. It was about the people with whom he communicated. It wasn't necessarily about the bottle that ultimately was the result of all that communication. Right. But it right. was it was speaking to people, sharing information with people. You know, you can imagine in a pre-internet world, it it was more of a challenge. There was more to to go in search of. And you had to rely on other people. You needed friends to help you investigate. You didn't have a Google. You didn't have, you know, a hundred different auctions. You just had you and those that had, that shared the same interest. Exactly. And so to think of collecting, which to our minds now has become about flipping, and clearly we, we take a strong stance against flipping in the nation. Mm. For, for him, the collecting was, was about being with other people who had a common interest. Mm. And it was interesting listening to him that I almost got a sense that he lamented the end of those days. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe doesn't like, well, and actually does not like, there's no maybe about it, doesn't like what collecting has become 
or the fraudulent aspect of it that oh, has now come along stuff, yeah. with these increased auction prices. So, yeah, I thought there was something to learn there from somebody who was at the very beginning of this current whiskey mm. explosion, this whiskey boom, and could really chart it uh, year by year and, yeah. and see where we are as, as we sit here in 2020. So, and then what I also liked is the door is wide open for us to go back and have further conversations with Sukinder as well. Yeah. And, and not touch collecting one bit mm-hmm. and talk about a host of other things. And and I, I'm excited about that. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed sitting there with him. I thought he was a really captivating speaker. Yeah. And as you can tell by you and I just not interjecting a lot and just thoroughly enjoying listening to him. Yeah. Uh, we, we were almost listeners of our, our own interview, um, which, yeah, I, I love it that every interview can be done differently and you and I can get a different experience. Let me ask you a question, Jason. Have you or do you think you have ever been the victim of a faked bottle? From buying from auctions? I am very cautious. Mm-hmm. And whenever there's a, even a possibility. But I did pick up an Ardbeg Very Young, which A, is a, is a whiskey that I loved when it was released. Okay. B, I didn't buy nearly enough of them. Mm-hmm. And... See, I needed it for a tasting that I was doing Okay, that was the very young, the still young, the almost there, the renaissance, and then the standard Ardbeg 10. Got it. And when the bottle came in, the capsule on it looked cheap as chips. It was a little on the loose side. And then the Ardbeg sticker that they used to put over the top mm. just looked really chintzy. And and I looked at it and I got very nervous that I had spent a fair amount of money, a few hundred dollars, on something that was not what it purported to be. Yeah. And because of the circles that you know we've moved in for a while, I was able to reach out to Tim Pewitt at the Ardbeg Project. Mm-hmm. And like me, he was a chap who had bought them back in the day. Unlike me, he had the forethought to actually buy a few extras uh, that he could enjoy <laughs> uh-huh, over time. Uh-huh. And and I I messaged him and said, hey, should the capsule look like this? And he texted me right back and he said, from memory, I remember they weren't great. But let me get home from work. I'll take a look. Uh, send me the photos that you've got and I'll send you the photos of what I've got. Yeah. And, and he did that very night. He sent me photos and I sent him my photos, and we were essentially exchanging photos of the same thing. <laughs> the The capsules uh-huh, were just uh-huh. just not great. They were creased in really funny ways, almost like somebody just taking their hand, their hand, yes, and just kind of try to affix it on a little bit tighter. There, the chintzy sticker on top matched the chintzy sticker on top of his. Everything, everything checked out, and I went ahead with the tasting and. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, it didn't taste how I remembered it, mm. but but I was confident after the back and forth with Tim that I wasn't dealing with a fake. I was just dealing with my own memories of how it tasted. 
But it was definitely cask strength art bag. Like there, you didn't yeah. pour, and there was you know, yeah. <laughs> like Pabst Blue, a bottle of Pabst Blue Ribbon. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was of the ilk, but it just wasn't how I remember. Oh, okay. So, um, uh, and and you. Well, really quickly, it wasn't as you remember it. Did you still enjoy it? Like, did it, was it better? Did it feel like it didn't live up to? Yeah, it it, it didn't live up to the memory that I had of it. Yeah. And, and then, you know, how much of that is the memory in place? How much of it is the back of my mind saying, well, could it still be a fake, <laughs> right? Like, it's just, it's yeah. hard when you, when you, purchase online and you're just you're putting your trust you're putting your faith in people and I, and I think that speaks to again what Sukinder was just talking you know if if they can bottle swap or they can buy from one and sell to another you know it's been in that person's collection the whole time like mm-hmm. if I bought it from Tim however it tasted I would be saying like I am drinking Ardbeg very young. <laughs> Buying it online, yeah. I'm saying I hope I'm drinking Ardbeg very yeah, young. Yeah. So, yeah. So there was, there was always a little question in the back of my head. Okay. Okay. Uh, I so it's interesting that yours is the Ardbeg very young. Mine is Ardbeg's sister company, Glenmorangie. <laughs> and were they using the same bottling hall on them? So it was it was the fifteen year old Sautern, but the 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 old one. I think it was a distillery only bottling. It's it's funny. I'm it it could be my lack of coffee right now. But there was a time when I knew all of the ins and outs of the special Glenmorangie bottlings. Was it distillery only? Was it duty free? What you know? What was the circumstance? And. As I'm talking to you now, I can't remember why I always sought it out, but I always <laughs> would seek it out. And I, and I finally got a bottle and I got it, you know, for what I thought was a good price. You know, I always had a cap for it and I was able to purchase it below that cap. So I receive it and I take it out of the box and I'm looking at the black capsule that covers the cork, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it looks chintzy. Mm-hmm. And it looks as if the creases are weird. It looks as if someone used their hand just to try to close it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I reached out to David Blackmore of Glenmorangie and, and Ardbeg fame. He's the, the global brand ambassador guy, and a uh, good friend of ours, and I, I sent him the picture, and he said, "No, that's that's how that's how they were, right? That's how it was done." <laughs> and uh, so, okay, I mean, and that's and that's kind of scary because it that capsule can come off real easy, yeah, which means yeah. you can access the cork really easy, which yeah. means you could replace it with some other amber colored <laughs> liquid really easy, yeah. Yeah, have, have you tasted yours with the questionable capsule? I haven't opened it yet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then, and, and again, I'll, I'll name no names, but our good friend and, and global sales manager Jess, the the third J and the triple J machine mm-hmm. here, 
uh, talks about a certain distillery who are very well known and very popular on auction sites and among collectors. And she talks about going through to their offices and going through to their archive mm -hmm. to discuss labels back when, when she was working auction. Uh, yeah. And and this company talks about they were back in the day, they were printing labels on their office printer and and sticking them on bottles. <laughs> and so there's no consistency. And, wow. and, and, and again, it speaks so beautifully to how Sukinder talked about collecting in today's interview mm -hmm. is in those early days, the 90s, the early 2000s, nobody even then saw what this was about to become, right. what this yeah. industry was about to do globally and with collectors and with special releases you know, and, and just the level of fanaticism. Mm -hmm. And now you look back and you say, <laughs> A, how could you not see that coming? And B, what do you mean you were just running labels on your office printer of a Friday afternoon? <laughs> it's <laughs> mental. It's absolutely mental. Yeah. Oh, man. And so, and so yeah, you've got Ardbegging Lemorangi where people have seemingly squeezed on a capsule with their hand. Somebody else who's printing on a Friday. And these stories go on as you as you move within the industry, you hear more of these types of stories. And it just boggles my mind that that's where the industry was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and 30 years ago. Yeah, and, and now it's it's the complete opposite. Now mm -hmm. it's it's all mm -hmm. about, I mean, in a way, in, in a good way, uh, it's it's important that labels are printer, printed at printing houses. Uh, huh? It's important that we use proper capsules and and all and all this. But you know, there was a time when it was it was just a bottle. It was a bottle with liquid inside, a label, a cork, and a capsule, and you went to buy it. And yep. now it's presentation, and it's. You know, it's 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 a different world. So the good news is you're seeing less and less of the chintziness, mm -hmm. but it's almost gone a little overboard. That's an, that's another story. Uh, we can go down yeah. that rabbit hole, but I won't. Well, and, and I will also say this to to anybody who's picked up our uh, American bottlings that are under wax. Mm. There is no way in which another liquid is getting into that bottle without it being clear and obvious that the wax has been destroyed. Yeah. So so next time you're taking a hammer and chisel to the wax, just remember it's there to protect the liquid inside. <laughs> and it's doing a bang-up job. Uh-huh. Indeed. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Pivot to news? Yeah. We've got a little bit of news. Should we call out the... Do you want to? How about you call out the, the paper boy? Paper boy, come over here real quick. Extra, extra, read all about it. Life story of Playboy Penny. Extra, 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 read all about it. Me and that Playboy. Fuck, that sounded creepy. <laughs> because anytime you say wake up the paper boy, I only think of Pulp Fiction. It's the only thing I have. Whenever we wake up the paper boy, it's a Pulp Fiction reference. It's all Pulp Fiction in my head all the time with our paper boy. I'm trying to think of what you're talking about. I don't, I don't, 
Paperboy in Pulp Fiction? You've focused on the wrong end of that sentence. Okay. What do we do to the paperboy? We wake him up. And who do they wake up in Pulp Fiction? Oh. (laughs) Who did did they... Oh, my God. When did you last sleep? (laughs) (laughs) I've seen this movie 12,000 times. I remember that. Yeah, better wake him up. The gimp. Better get up. Better wake up the gimp. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yes. That's why it's always creepy with a paper boy. <laughs> oh, oh my lord. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Daddy needs to. Daddy needs to wake up. All right. And Better do not use this as the Easter egg. The Easter egg is you. No. This is staying in here. Everything we're saying right now is staying in here. Oh, no, it's not. Every bit. It's, none of it is. <laughs> this is going to be a ten-minute podcast episode. Wouldn't it be great to do a 10-minute podcast and then have an hour and a half Easter egg? (laughs) Every podcast is only 10 minutes, but every Easter egg is an hour and a half. (laughs) That's fantastic. What about a podcast where we only talk about the interview? We don't play the interview. And then we say, if you'd like to listen to the interview, hang around after the closing credits. That's really funny. (laughs) Holy crap. (sighs) So, if you are listening to this episode on the day it drops, which is, which should be March 11, Mm -hmm. then we will be in the middle of our lottery for the new release of Pappy Nonsense, which we have talked about over the last few episodes. Correct. Make sure if you are in the United States that you sign up to the lottery and see if you are one of the lucky winners of a Pappy Nonsense. If you are listening to this the day after it, the episode drops, which would be March 12th. Oh, look at you. The lottery will be open until 5 p.m. Eastern. As soon as the lottery closes, we will begin notifying people whether they have won a bottle. Obviously, we cannot notify people that they have not won a bottle because we get far more entries than we do uh, winners. So do make sure that you check your inbox and your spam folders for any Mm -hmm. email saying that you have won. And we'll be emailing people right through the weekend. So you've got a few days of watching your inbox and keeping your fingers crossed that you might be among the lucky winners. Correct. So like you had said, the lottery closes 5 p.m. on Thursday, March 12. Eastern United States time. Eastern United States time. Those that receive an email that, that they've won the opportunity to to purchase Pappy Nonsense, you will have access to up to two bottles. Each bottle is $95, uh, $10 flat rate shipping. So uh, whether you buy one bottle or two bottles, it's, it's just the $10. And shipping will begin the week of March 16th. 
we've been working with our shipping agent to see if he can increase the number of bottles that he can ship on a weekly basis. The regular listeners and single cast nation members will know we've always had sort of this hundred bottle limit week after week after week, but he's told us that he can increase that. So we're going to test it out. I'm not committing to any numbers here yep. on wax, but I, w- I want to see what he can increase to and see if he can keep up with that increased number of, of boxes going out. So we'll see. Yep. Uh, either way, we've got um, around 850-ish Pappy Nonsense bottles up for sale. And uh, and that's why you have access to two of them rather than just the one. Adding on to what we said last week or last episode, our sixth retail release continues to be on a boat mm-hmm. sailing across the seas to mm-hmm. our port in San Francisco. And we're excited for that to land. We do not yet have an ETA, an estimated time of arrival, on that yet. But we are hopeful that we should have it by the end of April. I'm crossing all my fingers and all of my toes. And if it ends up being the beginning of May, that will not be surprising because these things almost always have a slight (laughs) delay to them. Ah, Good times, good times. But exciting stuff on that. Uh, Be sure to check news episodes uh, in previous... uh, Be sure to check news segments in previous episodes uh, for more information there. We are also, Joshua, once you and I... Stop traveling and stop having bar mitzvahs and stop moving around this country. Going to update the website and we will be able to send good people, good supporters of Single Cast Nation to the website for information on the sixth US retail release. Mm. We also continue behind the scenes to be working on our second United Kingdom, Europe, rest of the world release. And Correct. we continue to turn over stones and travel around warehouses and meet with various people about what that release might look like. We have no details, no information right now. Mm. However, oh. we do have another country to announce. We do, and actually we have some decent listenership in this country too. Awesome. uh, Thank you. So those of you living in Japan should be happy to know that whiskeys from Single Cast Nation release number one for the the rest of the world market uh, will get some of our whiskeys. A a fair amount of Kalila is going in there and and a few of our other bottlings. And we're going to see if we can get some exclusive single casks into Japan as well. So this is something that we're slowly going to start rolling out. Uh, Yep. You know, the U.S. has been lucky in that since 2011, every bottle has been exclusive to the U.S. So we figured it was high time now that we're expanding into other countries to give some of these other countries their own exclusives as well. So uh, for those of you living in Japan, look out for single cast nation bottlings at your local 
whiskey retailer. And hopefully you'll, <laughs> you'll find us. Um, but, but in addition to what you were saying before, Jason, where we will be updating our own website with details of release number six, we are working on another website altogether that will handle UK, Europe, rest of the world, Asia, you know, all of that. It will be a separate website. So you can, you can visit either to get all the updated information on our releases wherever you may be. Yep, exactly. It's a big project. You know, we thought, yeah. we thought building it for the US was a big project. The rest of the world is bigger than the United States, Joshua. No. I like the fact we can bring our geography references full circle in this episode. From Somalia and Afghanistan in the beginning to US and rest of the world in the end. Look at us traveling the world. I feel like you're trying to tell me that there's something other than America. It's, you know, I just, every, wow. every day that I've known you for uh, 10, 11 years, mm-hmm. I've, just, I've just continued to sow the same seed that there's, there's more to the world than just America. And some days so. I feel like I'm getting through and some days I don't. I, I, kind of, I feel as if I have to believe it a little bit, given how funny you talk. If you sound <laughs> like you, you come from some far off land. Um, so I... Yeah. You know, I'm an yeah. I'm an agnostic. I'm an agnostic, Jason. This is my really <laughs> terrible uh, Alabama accent. That's that's what I've been working on from day one of knowing you. Is a really terrible Alabama accent. Yeah, the the, the Alabamites are are not happy. Yeah, or or they're thinking he did sound familiar, and that's how they would say it. He did sound familiar. Correct. Correct. <laughs> they're, they're famous for in Alabama. Correct. Correct. Uh, so, so you're you're a man traveling. We're not going to do an email this week. No. We we need to get you out the door and off to your morning appointments. Yes, but I would like to just remind people how to get in touch with us. Uh, I think that's if, fair. Right. Here's uh, how you get in touch with us. We might never read your email, but how? Here's how you would reach out to us. No, we do read emails. Um, we even have <laughs> mailbag. Not, anyway, anyway, anyway. Just not all uh, of them. Just not all of them. Uh, you can email us, questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. You could tweet at us. Our handle is at onenationwhiskey. You could send us an, an Instagram direct message, a DM, a diminutive mouse. And that is our that handle. Mickey, Mickey's cousin? It, it is. It is. Didn't we cover this? It is Mickey's yeah. cousin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and our handle for Instagram is at One Nation Under Whiskey. And then finally, if you're like me, you're on Facebook all the bloody time. You could just go to the Facebook search bar, look up One Nation Under Whiskey. You'll find our group. You'll find our page. You can message us there. You can post in the group. You can ask questions. Whatever you want to do. The world, good listeners, is your oyster so long as you don't use the E in whiskey when you try to communicate with us through one of these channels. Did you see we got a name check in Forbes.com this morning? We got a name check in Forbes.com? We did. We did. They called us probably America's oldest independent bottler. Wow. Yeah. Forbes magazine. That is fantastic. 
yeah, I thought that was a really nice place to see us as of a morning. So, so thank you to them for for knowing about us. It's wait, wait a second though. Wouldn't you know? I want to give credit where credit is due. Wouldn't Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of the U.S. be that, or would that not be because they're a franchise? That would be my take on it, oh, given okay. that they're a franchise okay. of a Scottish independent uh, bottler. Okay, okay. Then. They, they would be an offshoot. But we are, we're American born and raised. Mm. And mm. yeah, yeah, we are, we are, pro- I, I want it on a t-shirt. I want probably, uh, I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you had the campaigns over here, Carlsberg, um, a European lager for the longest oh, yeah. time, yeah, yeah, yeah. had the tagline, probably the best lager in the world. And they're probably saved them from all sorts of other claims by other people. They were like, probably. <laughs> and so I, so I like the idea of single cast nation, probably America's oldest independent bottler. Probably. I said probably. <laughs> I love it. Fantastic. I absolutely love it. It makes me so happy. Oh, wow. We cannot, we cannot inform I was going to say our nation's politicians, but any politicians around the world of this word, probably. Probably. Fuck, they can use that like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) We probably signed the treaty. (laughs) We're probably reducing emissions. Like, how am I supposed to know? I don't know everything. (laughs) So with that said, Joshua, we should... Probably get out of here. Oh, I see what you did. I see what you did. (laughs) Pro level. Uh, Yeah. Well, Jason, it is, as always, lovely to see your face. As always, I, it's always uh, a real thing, a real thing, and, I, and I'm committed to that. It is a real thing. It is. When we have to go a couple of weeks of busyness and we don't get to have our usual chats and silliness and nonsense. And so I love the fact that the podcast gives us the perfect excuse to have our, our usual silliness together. Yeah. Yep. Well, enjoy the rest of your time in Chicago and safe travels home. Thank you. Thank you. And if I don't record the next episode from the Pacific Northwest, we will both be back in our offices. <laughs> and I look forward to uh, I look forward to that day. Well, Cheers, mate. Yep. Cheers, brother. Chin chin. <laughs> Two chins. Cheerio. Cheerios. Oh, I don't have anything to clink. Clink, 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 clink. Yeah, so so this is my friend's band, uh, my friend Matt's band, The Way Down. And they, so the song that opens the podcast and closes the podcast, and now we're using bits and bobs for the little segues, that album came out in 2004. And sadly, they broke up somewhere around 2005, 2006. But it's on this album called Welcome to the Family Zoo. And uh, I just, you can find the album on iTunes. I, I, I just think it's a beautiful, magical little indie rock album. 
and um, it's my summer music. And I just, there's not a lot of leading in and leading out. And I don't know, I feel like I'm giving you too many words. <laughs> Let me do this all over again. Ugh, I'm so tired. <laughs> Please, please, please make that the Easter egg on the end. 